You're listening to teaching from the Word of God, provided by Black Forest Chapel. This is the church where you will find biblical teaching and authentic worship with family and friends. We are located in Black Forest near Monument and just north of Colorado Springs, Colorado. We invite you to join us this Sunday. Find our location, worship times, and more at blackforestchapel.org. Good morning, or afternoon, whatever time you're watching this. I thought on a communion verse, it's kind of an unusual verse. It's uh, Revelations 3.20. It's a very familiar verse that we've heard, where Jesus said in Revelations, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. This verse has been used many times as an evangelistic verse to invite unbelievers to open the door of their hearts to Jesus Christ and let him into their lives. It was made popular by the painting by Holman Hunt. It's called The Light of the World. In the painting, Jesus is standing outside the door and knocking. There is no doorknob on the outside of the door. It must be opened from the inside. Although this verse has been used as an evangelistic verse, the context of the verse is to the church in Laodicea. So I'm going to read uh, Revelations 3, starting with verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy for me gold refined by fire, so that you may become rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. In verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him, and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In this passage, Jesus is addressing a church, a body of believers that it becomes self-sufficient. Jesus has become an outsider from his own church. Verse 20 is an invitation to return to fellowship with Christ. This verse is a call for believers to repent, as indicated by verse 19, which said, Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. Jesus desires to dine with us. In the culture of his day, 
at that time, the evening meal was a time to socialize and talk about life together during the meal. Can you imagine Jesus knocking on the door of your home to have a meal together today? Will you invite him in? Will you invite him in every day? Will you repent, turn away from your own selfish desires and invite Jesus to be the master of your home, the master of your heart, the master of your life? Before we fellowship together in the sacrament of communion, let's read 1 Corinthians 11, starting with verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. So let's take time to examine ourselves and confess before God the times we have kept the door shut and have kept Jesus out of our lives. Let's ask God's forgiveness for when we have lived selfishly, when we have not loved him with all our heart, soul, and mind, and when we have not loved our neighbor. Paul says in Corinthians, For I receive from the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Thank you, Scott. It's difficult to be away from from God's people. It's good to be with those few of us who could be here this morning. Uh, do not worry, we are properly socially distanced, I believe. Um, part of the reason for my beard, for this thing on my face, is to help with social distancing. So the people see me, including my family, and they turn away and they walk away from me. So... Um, it's also just because I'm a hermit now, so I have to live in my house. And you can only read so many books and lose so many video games to your sons before you have to have a hobby. And so this is also a hobby, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm uh, venturing to grow this until this crisis is over or until it becomes too itchy. So I hope the crisis is over soon because it's already itching a little bit too much. <clears throat> what we're seeing, though, and I think in the world around us and even in all of the the, um, the news conferences, the, the president and his task force, and um, all of the professionals, the doctors, all the financial institutions, and the small business association loans, and you know how's it affecting our economy, and all the people, all the, the the professionals that are dealing with this crisis, a lot of them just don't know what to do. This is unprecedented that we have shut down an entire country, um, if not the entire world. 
because of this illness, because of this, this virus. And we as human beings don't like the unknown. We don't like not to know what to do, right? We fight against that. We want to we wanna know what's going on. We want to solve all the problems. We spend a lot of time and energy trying to overcome the unknown. We want to control everything and have everything work in our favor. And so how long is a shutdown going to last? I don't know. And they keep moving the dates and we just, it's, it, it makes us feel uncomfortable. There's uncertainty there. How long do I have to keep socially distancing? Should I wear a mask or shouldn't I? Should I talk to this person? Am I too close to them? And there's too many uncertainties, right? How long should I grow this beard? I don't know. So many uncertainties, right? Some more important than others. One thing, though, that is certain, unfortunately, in this life is death. Death is a certainty. Death has been naturalized by sin. When sin entered the world through Adam, death became a reality. And so we all know that we're going to die. That is a certainty. And yet for some reason, there's so many that still, even though that's one thing that is certain and that should shape how we live and what we do and, and the things we say and, and the, the legacy we leave, that should be the one certainty. But instead, many of us, especially the world, unfortunately the church is, is um, sometimes goes with the current of the world, as Scott was talking about, that even though we are in here singing the name of Jesus, he's outside knocking on the door. He's not in here. We're focused on self. We're focused on our own kingdoms, unfortunately. But the world, knowing that death is certain, will try to ignore death. We'll try to push it off. We'll try to see if, they, if we can extend our life a little bit longer to, to avoid death. And we see that through the billion-dollar anti-aging market. Right? If you walk into a Walgreens, you have half the, half the Walgreens is trying to kill you. You got tobacco products and Twinkies and, and caffeine and soft drinks. And the other half is trying to prolong your life as long as you possibly can with all the anti-aging products and vitamins and supplements and all those types of things. You have, you have, uh, cryogenics. People want to freeze themselves and just really just tr- time travel is what they're trying to do. Just extend themselves as long as they can out of fear of death. You have the biohacking. Some of you have heard of biohacking before. So people are trying to hack into the um, biology of the human body, the genetic code, whatever they can do to try to prolong their life. And so they'll have, a lot of them are just selling supplements. They're just selling stuff. But, but they'll try to prove that if you, if you drink water in this way or this type of water, if you take these supplements, if you, if you actually wear certain types of lenses, certain type of colored lenses at certain times of the day, you can increase your brain function, which increases your overall s- systemic ability in the body and helps with anti, I mean, it's, it's, I'm serious. This is what they, they actually create all of these ways. And may, maybe, maybe it's helpful. I think we all know that we can, if we hydrate a little better, eat a little healthier, if we exercise a little more, those are all good things. We don't want to do things that are harming us. But when these, these professional biohackers are telling you to stand on your right leg every other Thursday at noon, right? And, and, listen to the sounds of the ocean and rub kale on your face or some type of lettuce on you. Like somehow that's going to extend your life to 120, 130 years versus if you're like me, you want a nice steak every once in a while and you want to watch football and you're good with 75 years, maybe 80 since my wife's in the room, right? You're, you're okay with that. But we fear so much. We want to, we want to stop the aging process. We want to do all these ridiculous things. 
And so instead of accepting this is a certainty, they try to ignore it. They try to prolong it. They try to create, if they can't do those things, they try to create a favorable afterlife. Right? So what are some of the false teachings out there? Annihilationism, so that there's nothing after, after death. You're, you're, you, there's nothing. You, you cease to exist. There is no consciousness. There is no soul that goes on. And so they, they try to teach that just live it up. Eat, drink, and be merry. There's, there's nothing after this world. We know the Bible says that's not true. It's very clear that we have a soul. And even though our body might die here on this earth, our soul moves on for eternity. Others would try to create some utopic version of heaven where everybody gets in, universalism. So even if they accept Jesus, they say that he died, and so everybody's good to go. We're all going to make it to heaven. The Bible contradicts that as well. Even Jesus himself teaches about hell, teaches about what happens if you don't believe in him and follow him, that you're not one of his. Some would, and this, you can tell this is a man-made afterlife um, religion, if you will, Hindus, the Buddhists, reincarnation, coming back again and again because of karma and trying to, um, trying to right the wrongs from the past life. And so you die and then you come back and, and I don't know why you would want to. Why would you want to do that? But there's, if you have no hope of anything else, if you don't know where you're going, if you have uncertainty, if you are fearful, of course you want to make something sound better. You want to comfort yourself. But I think it would be very discomforting that if I died because I ate too much bacon and then I come back as a pig, that's not just because of karma. That's not very comforting, right? That's, that's terrible. But this is what the world makes up. This is what we do. Even though death is certain, we try to ignore it. We try to prolong life. We try to create a favorable afterlife. We try to avoid the one thing that is certain and cannot be changed. But as believers, we are not to fear death. We're not to run from it. We're to live in light of it. We're to live our lives fully unto Jesus Christ. And we're to live for the Lord and we are to die for the Lord. As we walk in this world, we look heavenward toward our heavenly home. We are sojourners in a foreign land. We know this is not the end. This is temporary. These physical bodies are temporary dwellings. And we look forward to our heavenly dwelling. God gives us a, a new body. That's perfect. It's imperishable. This is the hope that we have. We need to walk differently in this world. So last week we talked about how disruption creates dependence. And we looked at um, the end of of Jacob's um, blessings to his sons. And so we've been in this story of Joseph since chapter 37 for for many, many months now. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Genesis 49. We're actually going to finish Genesis 49 this morning. So you you may not believe that, but unless something happens, we're going to actually finish this. I got some thumbs up. Okay, good. We still have another chapter to go, though, so we'll see how that goes. We're going to finish chapter 49, and we'll start with verses 28. And just as a reminder, uh, Jacob uh, knows that he's about to die. He's about to be gathered to his people, he said earlier. And so he, he knows he's, 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 at, he's at his end. He had to summon his strength out of bed just, just to bless his son Joseph and to bless his grandsons Ephraim and Manasseh and to bring them into the, the fullness of his, of his inheritance by adopting them as true sons, giving the double blessing to Joseph. We've talked through all of that. And then Jacob walks down and walks through the blessings of all of his other 12 sons. 
even though there's judgment involved with some of these and he's bringing up past sins and he's dealing with issues that were, that were not glorifying to God, that were not good for the family, they were still considered blessed. If you look at verse 28, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to him as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. And so even though we see Reuben being called out and, and really being stripped of his prominence as the firstborn and as the double blessing goes to Joseph and the leadership role goes to Judah, even though we see Simeon and Levi being called out for their violence and, and what they had done in the past, they still received blessing. They still received part of the inheritance. There is still grace involved here. And God is certainly behind all of this as he's giving words to Jacob. Jacob is prophetically blessing his sons, not just at the time that he's speaking to them as they're gathered around him, but for the sake of their progeny, for the sake of, of their tribes moving forward, for, for their legacy. What will their families, their tribes look like? Because these are, once again, this is the people of God. God loves them. They have sinned. They have turned away from him at times. Some have not repented. And yet God still chose them to set his affection on them, to use them as a light to the world around them. Now, their, their blessings were suitable to them. Those who did not repent, who did not have any remorse, who they did not receive the fullness of blessing that they could have. There was definitely um, a, a holding back of the potential reward because of their life. And those who had, specifically we looked at Joseph last week, and he was faithful. Look at the beautiful picture of his blessing, the promise of God. Jacob says in, in verse uh, middle of verse 24, that really Joseph was sustained by the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, by the almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph. He's, he's crowning him with blessing. So there's definitely a suitableness depending on, on the child and what they had done. And so the blessings are done. He has spoken all that he, he needed to to the sons. Now, as you're looking at this, it, it's interesting to me. This is, these are his final words, right? We know how important final words are. It's, a, it's an interesting picture, especially in the life of, of believers, I think, the, to look at the culmination of your life, of the sanctification, all that God has done, and, and then to, to, to see the end, to know that the end is, is now or it's near. What will you have to say? What are your final words? It's, a, it's one of those things that you, you kind of want to be at the bedside of, of, of godly men and women in their final hours and their final breath, because they're going to, they're going to see all of that. They're not going to, there's no hypocrisy there on the deathbed, right? There's, there's no one trying to angle for something. They don't have an agenda. They're, they're not speaking because they have to, they're speaking because they want to. There's something that they're, that they're giving away, that they're presenting before their last breath leaves their body. So you, you'd want to be gathered around. You'd want to hear what they had to say. And so Jacob gathers all of his sons around, and he, he speaks all these blessings. This is important stuff. He had, to get, he had to muster up the strength just to do this, just to sit up in bed and get this, this portion of his, his kind of final words done. And so that's and this beautiful picture of Joseph and, and, and the blessing for Joseph. And, and then he says, 
And then uh, verse 29, Jacob says, then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. That's a, that's a beautiful picture. He, he, he has hope that he will be gathered to, to those who have passed before him, to the, to the other patriarchs, to, to his grandfather and to his father. This is not just about his physical body being buried because that's the next part. This is about being gathered. And we've seen this in the life of the other patriarchs as well, that they live on. So there's no, life does not just stop there. The soul lives on. He's going to be gathered to his people. He will live on. And he's looking forward to it. So that's a beautiful last sentence to give, right? Those final words, those are important. I remember when our brother Wayne Weaver, who passed away um, just this past January, and uh, in the last days and hours of his life, he was uh, had a tough time speaking. He couldn't really talk. He had a mask on, and he had full oxygen, and he still tried to speak. He still tried to speak and and, uh, and bless those around him. But what struck me about Wayne was he, what little strength he had left, he gave away at the end. He had people lined up coming in through the door, and I remember visiting him. Um, the day or two before he actually passed, and and uh, he couldn't say much, but his his handshake said everything. Right? It was still as strong as ever, and he still leaned up in bed, and his eyes lit up. And Wayne always projected, no matter what he said to you, he projected his presence, how much he loved you, how much he, he cared for you, how much he 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 was glad you were there. And for all the people that came in and received, if you will, a blessing of of his final kind of words, his final bit of presence, as much as it may have been for Wayne, I think it was more for us. It was more for us to say goodbye, to, to thank him, to, to pray with him, to just be around this man who was an amazing, amazing man of God. So he didn't have many words, but his presence spoke volumes to us. We wanted to be next to him, the fullness of that life being passed on. Spurgeon, talking about this very thing, says that our pulpits often lack force and power. Men suppose that we speak but out of form and custom, but they do not suspect dying men of hypocrisy, nor think that they are driving a trade or following a profession. Hence, the witness of dying saints has often become powerful to those who have stood around their couch. Careless hearts have been impressed, slumbering consciences have been awakened, and children of God quickened to greater diligence by what they have heard. That's the life you want to impart, right? That's witness. That's the fullness of all that God has done, and you want to you impart that to those as you leave this earth, and you want to be around those who are imparting it, because it, it feeds us, it encourages us, it strengthens us. How we die matters. How we live matters. How we die matters. It is a witness. It's part of our ministry. The world around us runs scared. They're, they're in fear. They try to prolong. They try to ignore. We are to, to embrace it as part of what God has us to do. We are to die for the Lord. We are to die well. Not to seek it out. Not to actively look for death. But knowing that it's coming. We are to live a certain way. We are to die a certain way. And these final words matter. So Jacob, in these final words... In verse 29, he starts with, I am to be gathered to my people. But then he goes on, and it seems like the rambling of a broken GPS system, right? 
It's just directions. It's a lot of formality. It's about a cave and a field and, and, and a place. So why, why would he focus on, why would that be your last words to your sons? You just have these beautiful blessings. So let's read what he says in verse 29. Then he commanded them and said to them, so Jacob's commanding his sons now. I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. So in his very last breath, you would, you would hope that it would be the blessing of Joseph or, or this idea of being gathered to my people. But then he goes off and he starts talking about bury me with the fathers, with my fathers in the cave. And those are important things. And I'm, and perhaps, you know, they had been, away from Canaan for so long, for 17 plus years. The other brothers may have forgotten. Um, perhaps, you know, Joseph has been gone a lot longer than that, and he wanted just to remind them about what he wanted to be buried with his fathers. He wanted, he wanted to be buried in Egypt. Maybe that was just a general wish, but there's a lot of detail here, and it's repeated multiple times. So when that kind of thing happens, we want to pause and say, what's the importance of this? Why is he so concerned about being buried? What does it matter if he believes in God and he knows he knows he's being gathered to his people? So he knows he's leaving this earth. He's going to be with his people. He's going to be with the people of God. He's going to be with God. He knows that. That's a certainty. He's not fearing death. He's not running from it. Why in his last, his, his final breath, the final things that he says, he gives them directions. It would seem a little anticlimactic if on my deathbed, I was imparting blessings to my sons and telling my wife I love her and, 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 and giving these final words of encouragement and reading the, the scriptures. And then at the end of it, right before that final breath leaves my body, I start to tell my family, and make sure you, 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 you get on powers and, and you make a right on the, what, what is that road? Oh, yeah. So we want to make a right on, on, on circle or wait, what's the other one? Hey, you want, no, Dublin. And then you want to make another left. And make sure you get to the cemetery, the right one. I have this plot, and it's right here under this tree. Not the one over there. I didn't buy it from that guy. I bought it from this guy. Make sure you find the paperwork. And that's kind of what is happening here. He's, he's giving these instructions for his funeral. He's giving instructions of where he wants to be buried. Why, it seems a little anticlimactic, a little like, well, okay, okay, Dad. What? It, it's kind of lost maybe some of its fervor, some of its impact. That's, that might, might seem that way when, from the initial cursory read of the text, but, but that's not what's happening. This is not merely directions being given to his sons on how to get to his burying place. This is an act of faith. He's planting a flag of faith by wanting to be buried with his fathers, with the patriarchs. This is a final witness to his sons, to his grandsons, to the world around him, to Egypt. We'll see in a couple weeks. Next week we'll have Easter Sunday. And in a couple weeks we'll, we'll get into chapter 50 and we'll see this, this funeral procession that's, that's a, it's a, it's a great company. It's, it's a pretty massive event for this man's burial. 
This is to be a final witness. To have all three, to have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob buried in the same place, it emphasizes belief in the promises of God because God promised to give them that land, the promised land. And he's reminding his sons and he's reminding anyone who would hear and even in the funeral procession to follow that they are not of this world. They are sojourners in this world. That God has, has made a place for them. And he takes that seriously. Let's look back. We'll take a little little uh, trip backwards in Genesis and see some of the importance and how this all came about. If you would turn back to Genesis 15, and we'll just uh, have little sections moving forward in Genesis. But Genesis 15, starting in verse 5 and 6, we see God's covenant with Abram. God's covenant with Abraham. And it begins, as he says, and he brought him outside. When, when Abraham's asking about this heir, and he, God, brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. So look toward heaven, Abraham. I just love this beautiful picture of God taking Abraham outside, taking Abram outside. What does that look like? Why don't you just come with me? Let's go. How did that whole interaction take place? Just a beautiful picture. And he brought him outside, looked toward heaven, the number of the stars. Number the stars if you're able to number them. And obviously, that's impossible. Too many. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. This is God's promise to Abraham. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham was considered righteous because he believed in God. He believed in God's promises. And so if we move forward, still in chapter 15, just at the end, verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, so we already talked about the offspring, the, the number of offspring, which is too, too many to count. To your offspring, I give this land, or in another, another way of saying it, I have given this land. This is, a, this is already done in God's view. It's already done. To your offspring, I give this land. I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the, from the, to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the, and, um, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites and the Jebusites. So these other nations that are living there, they currently own this land. They currently reside in this land. I'm giving you this land that you're in right now. He's, this is a promise, Abraham. I'm going to give you all these descendants and I'm going to give you this land. He made a covenant with him. So this is the promise given to Abraham. If we move forward to Genesis 23, Genesis 23. There's an entire chapter. At the beginning, we see that Sarah dies, but the rest of the chapter is all about securing this cave. It's all about negotiating and securing this burying place. An entire chapter. Chapter 23, Genesis 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba. That is Hebron. You recall Hebron. That is the place where Abraham sojourned. That's the place where Isaac sojourned. That's where Jacob grew up, right? That's where Joseph was before he was, was 
sold into slavery. So this is, this is their place. This is, even though they're foreigners in this land, this is home. This is the promise. This is ground zero for promise. That is Hebron in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of tombs. None of us will withhold this, um, will withhold from you his tomb or hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites very respectfully. He, he's a sojourner, he's a foreigner. Bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me, Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. So in your presence, he's, he's petitioning. He's, he's, he's been on Zillow. Right? He's, he's, he's looked through the, the ads. He's, he's, he's looking for some real estate. This looks good. This is, I, want, I want to pay full price for it. I'm, I'm petitioning you. In the, so this is a, he's doing it in front of the other people, um, with other witnesses. This is a real estate contract. Right? He's negotiating an actual contract to purchase some land. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, so he's actually there. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of the city, lots of details about who's there, lots of details about who's listening, because this is important. This is a contract. And Ephron says, no, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field. I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of my sons, in the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead that Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it for me that I may bury my dead there. Abraham wants to, he wants to pay for it. He doesn't want to just, when, when it comes to the contract, he wants to sign deed. He wants, he wants to exchange currency for the land. He wants to make sure this is settled, that everyone knows that this belongs to Abraham. This belongs to his family. Not some hearsay thing generations later that, well, yeah, I think he gave it to him, but it really it was kind of like a gift or, you know, how all of that works. So Abraham's being wise. He also wants to know, wants to show that this is worth something to him, that he's planting a flag of faith. God made this promise here. God is going to grow his people here. God is going to give them this land. It's already done. And so he wants to make sure this, is, this costs him something as well. He says, I give the price of the field. Accept it for me. Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. So Ephron will have nothing to do with it. Just, just take it. Just here. Let's just do it on a handshake. You know, he, he wants... The witnesses involved, he wants the currency exchanged. Abraham listened to Ephron. He's being very respectful. He listened to him. And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. He gave him a fair price for the real estate, a fair price for the cave, a fair price for the field. 
Verse 17, so the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Lots of redundancy, right? He's saying the same thing multiple times in multiple ways. Doesn't that sound like a legal document to you? Redundancy? Lots of things said at this. This, this, is, this is signed. This is done. This is a deal. And even in, in, in God's perspective, as he's making these promises to his people, he spent an entire chapter just on this place, because the place represents the promise. The place represents the promise. And so Abraham wants to be buried there. Isaac and Rebekah, and now Jacob, wants to be buried there. It represents the promise. Let's move forward a little bit more as the story unfolds. Chapter 35, Genesis 35. Genesis 35. Start in verse 16. So this was, they, they were traveling, they were making their way from Padan Aram. They're making their way back to Hebron. They were journeying from Bethel. So it says, then they journeyed from Bethel when they were still some distance from Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. They're still some distance, so they're, they're still pretty far away. They're, in, they're more the northern area. Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. So this is Rachel. This is Jacob's beloved wife, the one that he spent 14 years in hard labor for the opportunity to marry her. Remember that he was tricked by his uncle Laban, and he married Leah first. Spent seven years, and then he spent another seven years of labor just to marry Rachel. This is his beloved. This is who gave birth to his two favored sons, to his son Joseph and to Benjamin. This is the one he truly loves. And so we see that she was giving, giving birth to Benjamin. When her labor was at its hardest, verse 17, the midwife said, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem, on the way there. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. And then if you go over, still in chapter 35, verses 27 through 29, and Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath or Arba, that is Hebron. So they're in Hebron. They're in that same area that Abraham was, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So Rachel was not buried in this place. She was buried much further north, out, really on the outskirts, on their way in, to the promised land area, to the place that he, he, that he would end up raising his sons. So Rachel is not there, the one that he loves. If we continue to move forward, and this is all going to come together in a moment, 
chapter 46, Genesis 46. Joseph is bringing his family to Egypt. So we, we, we went over this together. Jacob is making the journey. He knows that Joseph is now alive and he's making this journey. He stops and he presses pause and he wants to make sure he's going in the right direction at the right time. He's doing what God wants him to do. He's, he's done trying to manipulate and do things on his own. He knows that he's weak and God is strong. He's trying to trust the Lord. And God spoke to Israel, verse 2, in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. So fulfilling his promises, I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. There's a promise to bring him out of Egypt, right? There's a promise to bring him back. And so Jacob wants to go back. He wants, he wants the promises fulfilled in his lifetime, obviously. He definitely wants it fulfilled in, his, in the lifetime of his sons, of his family, and then if we go to chapter 47, to turn one chapter over, chapter 47. Starting in uh, chapter 47, starting in verse 27. Thus Israel settles in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. So remember, they were settled. They have this land now that Joseph procured for them in Egypt. And it's a good land that's right outside the city, so they're not as influenced by the city. But jo- Joseph can keep an eye on them. And then they gained possession in it, the Bible says, and were fruitful, and they multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, so this is when he first had that inkling that he was about to pass, he called his son Joseph and said to him, this is before he's talking at the end of 49. He's talking just to Joseph. If, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. It's the same as kind of raising your right hand to God. This was a, this was a, a promise, a personal agreement. Do not bury me in Egypt. Well, why, why not? It's, it's lush. They've been settled there. They're, they're prospering there. They're fruitful. They're multiplying. And he's got all these healthy years. And yet his first thing is he's about to die. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt. Bury me in their burying place. Joseph answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. This was important to Jacob. Look home. This was on his mind as much as anything else here toward the end of his life. And he bowed his head upon his bed. He's tired. And then he summons his strength. And, and then remember, he's now in, in chapter 48. He's giving the blessing to Joseph. And he's talking about how God blessed him. And, and, he, and he recounts the promises that have been made to the family, right? I will make you fruitful and multiply and, a company of, and make you a company of people and give this land to your offspring. And he's talking about this everlasting possession. And so he's talking to Joseph about it. And, and then he blesses the two boys and gives them part of the inheritance. And as he gets down, he has this reminiscing moment. And look, look at what he's thinking about toward the end of his life. As for me, in verse 7, he says, as for me, this is chapter 48, verse 7. When I came down from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath. It is Bethlehem. Another little side note, another, I mean, he's fondly thinking of his beloved wife and where she's buried. As he's thinking about the promised land and where he wants to be buried, he's thinking about his wife and where she's buried. And so we go back to our text. Chapter 
and this command to his sons, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in in the field of Ephron the Hittite. All these details. He's giving them the legal document. Here's where it is. Not just directions to where to go. here's, Here's exactly where you are burying me. This is the possession that we have because of Abraham. And this is where Abraham and Isaac and their wives, and this is where I buried Leah. Wouldn't you think in a storybook ending, when it comes to Jacob and his whole life and how he's really kind of connived his way through and manipulated people and things, and he was always looking for the best result. He's always looking for his own preference. He's always trying to pull someone else down so he can, he can get in front, right? His preference was important. This was, it was how he lived his life. And at the end of his life, for Jacob, God's promises were more important than man's preferences. Because if, if we had a storybook ending here, if his preferences were had in, the, in his last wishes, his final breath, wouldn't he say, bury me with Rachel? Bury me with my beloved. It's going to take you a little longer. But I want to be buried next to her. We bought these side-by-side plots and it's overlooking a nice valley. And my, my dad's in some cave in some random field by the Hittites. And I don't, it's pretty dark. And I, I'd rather be here with her. And I set up a pillar and it's a beautiful place. And for Jacob, God's promises to please God was more important than his own preferences, even in his death. In his death, he was witnessing to his sons. As he spoke to Ephraim and Manasseh, you are sons of the promise. You're not just sons of Egypt. You were born here. You have all the privileges here, but that's not who you are. So I'm going to bring you in the full, in the, into my family. I'm adopting you as true sons. I'm giving you the inheritance that belongs to you under God that came through my father Isaac and his father Abraham. These are the promises for us. We are his chosen people. We are to be a, a light to the world, a nation for him. He is to dwell among us and he will bless us. So Ephraim and Manasseh, you, you were born in Egypt, but you're not sons of Egypt, right? There's a witness there. There's, there's planting his flag of faith and the promises of God. This is what God said, and this is what God's going to do. If God said it, God's going to do it. And I'm believing that. And I'm, 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 I'm believing that so much, and I want to express my faith in what God has said and what God's going to do, that I want you to take my body and take me all the way back, and I want you to bury me with my, with my fathers. I'm being gathered to my people, but bury me with my fathers, with my people. Let my body be an expression as you carry it through these different countries, as you carry it through this foreign land. We're foreigners, we're sojourners. And yet God, as you carry me through these lands of the, of the Hittites and the Canaanites, and as you carry me through Canaan, it is going to be a, it's going to be a flag to the rest of the world. It's going to be a sign to the rest of the world that this belongs to God, that we belong to God. We've purchased. This is our possession, just as we are, are God's possession. It's an amazing act of faith. It's an amazing witness to his grandsons. And as he talks to his sons, take me back. Yes, we're flourishing here. Everything is going well here. We didn't die here. We we were going to die in Canaan. There was a famine and there was no food. And yet God brought us here. And God sent Joseph ahead of us. He has his purposes. He knows what he's doing. Yes, we're flourishing here, but this is not our home. Egypt is not our home. This world is not our home. He's looking toward the heavenly Canaan. He's looking toward the heavenly city, right? And we know that if we turn to Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews 11, we see evidence of this. Verse 
Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him in the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Then if we scroll down, verse 13, so Sarah and those who were given the promise originally, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. They could see them because God said them. God said it so they could see. If we're not in God's word, if we're not allowing God to reveal himself to us, if we are not opening the scriptures and letting God speak, we can't see where we're going. The world shuns the scriptures. They mock the Bible. They think it's a joke. They think it's a crutch in some way to control, or they think it's a, uh, just, just man-made ramblings that claim to be from God. That's not what we believe. They say that. They push the Bible aside. They kick it out of every institution they possibly can. They, they don't even want us to speak the name of God. They don't want us to, to pray to him in public. And yet, who are the ones with any peace in the midst of crisis? Who are the ones that have the ability to, to stand firm when the rest of the world is sinking in fear and in doubt? the ones who have the scriptures, those of us who believe in Jesus. We have the peace of Christ. It transcends our understanding. We have the Holy Spirit of God living in us who speaks to us and says, this is true. We know whom we have believed. They could see them because God said them. They greeted them from afar, verse 13, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Have you acknowledged lately that you're a stranger, that you're an exile on this earth? This is not your home. Have you acknowledged that lately when you're time with the Lord? Forgive me, Father, for holding on to this earth so, so tightly all the time. Forgive me for holding on to my health. This is... This body's perishable. I know that death is a certainty, but my soul will live on with you. And whether I'm, I'm at home in the body or I'm away with you, Lord, I want to. My aim is to please you in all things. Do so we hold on to our health too much instead of seeing it as a means, a, a way for us to depend more on God, as a as a vehicle for sanctification, if you will? Do we hold on to our finances? our careers, our 401k, do they matter more to us than the worship of our living God? Do we exalt God? Do we bring him glory? Or do we exalt ourselves? Because we look for earthly things to satisfy us. Our status, our position, our reputation, our very life, nothing is more important than the name of Christ exalted. Nothing. In this crisis, in this time of, 
of seclusion and separation and doubt and uncertainty, we have the words of life. We have everything we need. And if everything else is stripped away from us, and all we have left is our relationship with Christ and the church that he has built, we have everything. Because if that's what we're looking forward to, if that's our heavenly goal, to be with Christ and with the saints forever, worshiping God forever, we can do that now. We can start that process now. And yes, we have to deal with, with lots of other problems and we have to deal with all the, the, the little annoyances in life and all the admin and clerical work, if you will, right? We got, we got to, we got to make sure we pay the bills and we got to pay our taxes and we got to, we got to go to work and we got to do all the, we, we got to make sure there's food in, in, in the fridge and, and make the meals and we, we have to deal with sin that keeps rising up and, and, impeding our progress, and we have to deal with this, this body this, that keeps fighting against us, the flesh that rises up. We have to deal with all these little things, but if we continue to hope heavenward, if we're looking toward our, our heavenly home, then we can deal with all these things. If we look at our actual mission, our purpose here, to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news to those who are lost, if that's our main dish, if that's what we're supposed to be doing, then all the clerical work is fine. It, it, it's not fun all the time, but it allows us to do our job. It allows us to be on mission. My dad, um, we had a family business. He was a contractor, worked in construction, sold life, um, owned a owned a business, Hartle and Sons Construction, and it was my dad and my uncle and my one of my other, uh, one of my other uncles and. Uh, myself, my brothers, we would work with him on, you know, um, summers and after school weekends. We'd do a lot of stuff on the job site. And I, I loved watching my dad on the job site. This, that was his element. He loved the, he loved the demo, solve, problem solving, doing renovations, building new homes. I mean, the smell of sawdust is kind of in my, in my brain, right? We're always at the, at the hardware store, at the lumber yard and, and anything my dad didn't like to do on the job site, that's why I was there to do those things, right? To carry, to, to mix, to, to do some, some of the, some of the work that they didn't want to do. But ultimately, he loved everything he did. He, he just worked there for, he'd work there for six, seven, eight hours, sometimes go back on the weekends and they would just, they just loved being on the job site. He loved building. He loved doing those things. The other side of it was when I saw my dad at home in his office. And he had to be on the phone with subcontractors who weren't showing up and suppliers who maybe weren't fulfilling their agreements and deadlines and trying to manage the jobs that he had to do estimates. So he had to meet people and, and do measurements and try to figure out how much material he's going to need and labor costs and doing all the numbers. And my dad was very intelligent. He can, he can do all those things. My mom helped him in the office with some of those things, but that was not his favorite spot. That was all the admin work. That was the, the annoying stuff. But if he didn't do that work, if he didn't line up subcontractors, if he didn't get you know labor costs and material costs, if he if he didn't create the the estimate, then he couldn't get the job, and then he couldn't be on the job site doing the thing he loved to do. Right? He had to do all the little things, all the clerical things, all the the annoying things he had to do, even if he stared out his window more than he did the work, or or paced around, or procrastinated a little bit. He had to get that part done so that he can get to the meat, the stuff he really loved, the stuff that was effortless. We are on mission here. We have a, we have a job to do. We are called by God. 
to take his word, to take his gospel, take the name of his son into the world around us. This is a perfect opportunity for us to do that in the midst of a crisis when everything else is uncertain and we're standing on the rock and the world is sinking all around us to, to reach down and to pull somebody up and to give them firm footing. Let's not get lost in all the, the clerical things, all the little, th- the annoyances. I've been really distracted by, well, what does this mean for our business? And what does this mean for our home? How am I, how are we going to pay these bills? And what about the career? And what about the, you know, things here at the church? And thinking about all the little clerical things, all, all the details that are important, but I'm focused too much on those. I need to be focused on the, the main goal, the main reason why I'm here and not to lose sight of it. And I pray that we would do the same, that we would live in such a way to bring glory to God and bring many into the family through Christ. Abraham and the patriarchs, they, they acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They were not holding on to all those little things. Verse 14, for people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have the opportunity to return. He wasn't thinking about going back to Ur. He wasn't thinking about going back to where he came from. He was thinking about where God was taking him. Verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And so as we look at this, final words of Jacob, these, this final breath of Jacob talking about this real estate transaction, this legal right to this cave where he wants to be buried. He's planting a flag of, of faith. He's expressing his belief in the promises of God. And so for us as, as believers and as God's people here at Black Forest Chapel, I would encourage you, number one, that we shouldn't be fearing death. We shouldn't be living like the world and we shouldn't be dying like the world. We're to do things differently. We know that death has been swallowed up forever. We see in 1 Corinthians 15, if you go and read that, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Jesus overcame all of that. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He was raised again on the third day. He overcame death. Death is not a problem if there's a resurrection. And we'll talk about that next week. But lastly, believers witness for the Lord in life and in death. We are to be witnesses. We're not to be sitting on our hands, waiting this thing out. Our faith in God needs to be greater than our concern for our own health, our own lives, our own finances, all of those things. As we close this morning, let's turn to 2 Corinthians 5. Second Corinthians 5, talking about our heavenly dwelling. This is the hope that we have. It should cause us to live differently. It should cause us to die differently. 2 Corinthians 5, starting verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. 
For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that we, what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So, how are God's people to live? So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are, a good, we are of good courage. This is repeated twice. Are you of good courage this morning? And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. That's our goal. Verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Knowing all of this, knowing where we're going, knowing that this is not our, our final resting place, knowing that our soul will depart someday, and that there's two destinations, according to the scriptures. One, separation from God and, and hell forever. The other, if we believe in Jesus Christ, Eternal life with God, reigning, ruling with him, co-heirs with Christ, the full inheritance that comes as sons and daughters of the living God. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Our life is not our own. We're not to live for ourselves any longer. We're to live for him. He's called us to mission. If you want to spend uh, this, this holy week coming up as we prepare for Easter, I would encourage you, as we looked at Jacob's final words today, I would encourage you to go look at the final words of Jesus as he hung on the cross. Look at the final seven statements of Jesus. You can look those up. They're pretty well, um, they're well provided if you look them up online. The seven statements of Jesus, the last words of Christ as he hung on the cross. Look at what he said. Look at what was on his mind. Look at what was important to him as he died a gruesome death for us. And then I'll leave you with the last words of Christ after the resurrection, right before he ascended into heaven from Acts 1.8. And you've got to realize, too, as, as, you, as you look, uh, I know some of you will be studying the, today's Palm Sunday. You'll be looking at the triumphal entry of Christ. And uh, you can find that in Mark 11, some of the other gospel accounts. And as Christ was entering into the city, into Jerusalem, he came in as a, um, with a hero's welcome, and they shouted, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna is the, in the highest. And they're worshiping God. They, they see him as this, this king that's coming in, right? They're usher in and, 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 and break down the Roman governments and all that rule and, and, and be placed on the, on the seat as the coming Messiah and, to, and to establish Israel again as, as the, the centerpiece. And they're, they're, they're ushering him in. They're, they're praising him. It's an expression of adoration and of joy. And they're putting down palm branches. And, and soon after that, those very same people, because he did not usher in this kingdom the way they thought he should, those same people that were saying, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, those same people would later yell, crucify him. 
because their, their minds are set and fixed on the world and not on God, the things of God. And we, we see in Acts, human nature kind of creeps in again. So Jesus has risen from the dead now. He's about to ascend. Acts 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're asking him the same question. Can we expect this to take place? And Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that is fixed, that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Don't worry about that. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. We're always waiting. We, we expect everything to be perfect here. We expect the kingdom to be ushered in and for everything to be easy. We don't know when that time's going to come. Jesus will come back. He will establish his kingdom forever. Until that time, we are to be faithful to him, even in our suffering, even in this world. We are to, we are to live differently. We are to die differently. And he's given us a work to do. And we've been given the Holy Spirit as power to be witnesses. We are to be witnesses. As Jacob gave his final breath, he witnessed to his family. As we live and as we give our final breaths, may we be witnesses to the love and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. And his promises are good because what God says he will do, he will do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you illuminate what you have inspired. That your word is food for us. That we are nourished in our soul by the truth that you speak and by what you reveal. And that we can grow in knowledge of who you are. We're so thankful, Lord, for all that you provide. And thank you, Lord, even though we are not physically here together, Lord, that we are your people, and nothing can tear us apart from you. Nothing. Thank you that you've given us a work to do. Thank you that we don't have to fear death. That not only can we live differently, we can die differently. For your glory, for the good of those around us to be an encouragement, Father. Help us, Lord, in our weakness. Help us, Lord, as you sanctify us when we rebel against your discipline, when we, be, when we rebel against your loving hand that, that allows suffering, that allows circumstances that are not in our eyes favorable, Lord, but we know that you do all these things for good, for the good of those who love you, that are called according to your purpose. And we are called. We are your saints. We are your family. You love us. Help us to see from your perspective. May we be a people of the word, Father, so that we may not doubt and fear like the world around us. May we be people of prayer so that we be fully dependent on you and not dependent on ourselves. And Lord, as we go into this week, this sacred week of remembering, Lord Jesus, your journey to the cross, your obedience to the Father, your willingness 
to be scorned, to be mocked, to be abused, to be falsely accused. Ultimately, Lord, to be crucified, to have spikes driven through your wrists and through your feet, to die a horrible, agonizing, torturous death because you love us. And you did so to take the sins that were on us, you put them on yourself, the great exchange, and you gave us your righteousness, allowing us to stand before a holy God, justified because of your blood. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for enduring the cross. And Lord, we will celebrate together while apart next Sunday your resurrection. For without the resurrection, our faith is built on nothing. Thank you for the promises of your scriptures. Thank you for the the truth that you conveyed this morning. Help us to live a life that's different. In Jesus' name, amen. And just a reminder for everyone before we uh, close, um, next Sunday is Easter Sunday. We are planning to have a modified worship team back up here on the stage and um, providing some some music for us to, to to worship together, even while we're in our homes. So we'll we'll provide the lyrics either through attachments to an email or hopefully maybe on the video itself. But we will have some music and we will have an Easter message, and uh, we just uh, ask and pray that you join us next week, even from your home. So thank you very much. God bless you. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from the Word of God. If you don't have a church home, we invite you to visit Black Forest Chapel in Black Forest, Colorado, near Monument and just north of Colorado Springs. You'll find biblical teaching and authentic worship in an environment that feels like family and friends. Get directions and more information at blackforestchapel.org.